Welcome to our interview series on brave feminine leadership. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce you to Bob Ray, who's joining us for our series uh, titled No More Secrets, Extraordinary Leaders Share Their Journey from Good to Great. Bob, wonderful to have you join the conversation. Thank you, Melissa. Great to be here. So, Bob, I'm just going to take a minute to step through your bio. Uh, so excuse me as I look down for this. So with over 30 years of success in technology, telecommunications and consumer service businesses, Bob Ray is the CEO and president of Clear Captions. It's a US-based phone captioning company. At the forefront, he fuels the company's passion to help customers stay connected with innovative and easy-to-use technology project uh, products Sorry, that help them age in place comfortably in their homes. We'll touch on what that means, Bob, as we go through the conversation. In 2017, he led the separation of clear captions from Purple Communications, a video relay service provider, uh, where he served as CEO of both companies. He then grew clear captions from the ground up and what began as a startup quickly turned into a nationwide company that served hundreds of thousands of hard of hearing consumers. Prior to Purple, he was president and COO of Academic Partnerships, CIO of Mosaic Sales Solutions, executive VP of Securus Technologies, director of operations at Fujitsu's network communications company and various roles at Bell Atlantic Verizon. He earned a master's degree in business admin and a bachelor's degree in economics and psychology from the University of Pittsburgh and continues to brave the growing demands and needs within the industry. Bob, uh, I've also had the pleasure uh, in my tenure as CEO of having you as a wonderful client. So I can attest firsthand to the wonderful supporter and sponsor you are of female talent. As I said earlier, fabulous to have you here. For people in our audience who haven't had the pleasure of coming across you before, can I ask you to lead off by sharing a bit about you and your background and, and who you are as a human being? Sure. Sounds good, Melissa. First, I'd start off and say you were also a fantastic partner during that period of time. So thank you very much for that compliment. Um, I'll start off and say, you know, I was born in the Northeast of the United States, um, little coal town near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, honestly, my family goes back in lineage back to the 1400s in Scotland on my father's side mining coal. Wow. Um, my father dropped out of college, was an entrepreneur. He had serious health problems his entire life. Um, but found a love in grocery stores and being a butcher. My mother, she was, uh, you know, on my mother's side, my grandmother was a housekeeper. My grandfather was a police detective. They separated a long time ago, and that left a struggling family raised by my grandmother and my mother, who was oldest with three younger brothers. My mother never got the opportunity to go to college, but worked um, so that her three brothers could go to college. Wow. Her working career turned into escalating responsibilities, and um, over time, she became the primary breadwinner in various managerial sales and public relation roles within Bell Atlantic. And I kind of talk about that because that was my image as I started to grow up. Um, with my mother working long hours, I spent most of my time growing up with my father and my grandparents. Um, when I was with my father, I was working at a very young age in his grocery store in a butcher shop. Yeah. I learned to run a cash register, stock shelves, take inventory. Um, and I picked up my share of skills as a butcher. When Fantastic. I was with my mother, I learned about an interesting world that was far from my coal town upbringing. Uh, I learned corporate life in a big city. She commuted there every day. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, in short, my father taught me hard work and the importance of customer service. 
to be entrepreneurial and, um, and focused on success. Well, my mother, I think, taught me about the politics of navigating corporate life and the corporations have a lot of resources and toys and, and some really exciting big things that I couldn't imagine, imagine back in the day. Um, I had a love of technology. Um, you know, the weekends, it drove me to a local Radio Shack store and a television radio store on the weekends. I love to build electronics and play with technology. Um, in high school, I pursued engineering. I even volunteered for an internship at a local radio station. Okay. And uh, that internship um, actually turned into a radio personality role um, for a year. And uh, that was actually short-lived until I went away to college. Tell me more. What were you doing at that point? I was actually, I started off recording a few commercials and then they were desperate for people to work Saturday and Sunday mornings. And so that got me on the air and I wound up being a Saturday and Sunday morning um, disc jockey, but it was, it was very similar to the movies back in the day where the teletype was in the room and I would tear off the news and read the news and I was everything. It was kind of entertaining at a young age. That's fantastic. I had no idea you were so experienced when I invited you to join me here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I studied engineering um, at the University of Pittsburgh. That's how I started. And I hated it. I, you know, I loved to play with the toys and I loved the technology, but, you know, the, the more um, academic side of calculus and chemistry was awful. And so I wound up with a degree in economics and psychology. Um, and uh, I think that was kind of more of the way I should have started. Um, it was stuff that I enjoyed and understood. It was more practical. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother helped me land summer jobs and I wound up working for Bell Atlantic for three summers straight, running cables and, and really just doing not even necessarily internships, but more a career type job for Bell Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really enjoyed that time. And so that actually led me to going into Bell Atlantic as management um, when I graduated. And so the opportunity that I took at the time was their executive development program as a manager. Um, but that was very much uh, focused on how to rapidly move me up and give me a lot of different experiences in a very short period of time. And so, you know, to kind of summarize my 10 years with Bell Atlantic, I moved um, probably once every 14 months. So I had about eight home moves during that time where I moved all over the Northeast within the Bell Atlantic footprint every time getting slightly more responsibility or a lateral move that gave me, you know, another interesting experience of some kind. And uh, that went on for for 10 years till I wound up in the state of Delaware, um, where I had finished my MBA from the University of Pittsburgh, remotely and directly visiting Pittsburgh. Um, I had gotten married. And so my wife and I had settled down in Delaware and I was running the state of Delaware and Philadelphia area. Um, So, so a very neat experience period over 10 years. Mm. Um, That was when the telecom boom started. And so the telecom boom pulled me to Dallas, Texas, where in Dallas, Texas, I uh, took a job for Fujitsu and uh, I ran product support globally for Fujitsu for a couple of years and, and basically newly married traveling the world. I just moved my wife to Dallas, Texas, and I was running operations everywhere. And so, and so it was a great experience. Um, My wife did not love it that much during that period. um, But, you know, it was an early sacrifice that I needed to make. Um, From there, I moved on to a a 
I actually left Fujitsu with a bunch of folks that uh, we decided to do a startup. And so um, stepping into a startup role, um, I ran the operations side of the startup. We were all excited because it was telecom boom and we were going to have a great opportunity. And the short version of it was the telecom boom busted. And I think we all remember the early 2000s. That's when it was. And uh, we actually wound up closing up the company. Um, Actually, the 9-11 attacks finished us off. Right. complicated why, but it finished us off and we had to close up around Christmas time that year. And so I call that my second MBA. I've always appreciated that experience. Um, from there, uh, an, another company, I, I joined running the operations portion, but expanding my role over about a seven-year period. The company was known as Securus Technologies and it provided telecommunications and all kinds of technology services into prisons. And so, you know, over a neat period of time there, I created a lot of technology and we accomplished a lot of great things. But I think what I really got out of that one is I really enjoyed helping people. Um, There was uh, a neat element to secure us where we were catching the bad guys and, uh, you know, solving crimes, but also helping prisoners um, find better life after prison through a bunch of things that we gave back to the prison system to literally help them when they finally were released. And so, and so I really appreciated that. Um, Without getting into why I left there, I went on to another role, Mosaic Sales Solutions. I was there for three years. Um, It was a great role. I loved what we were doing, um, but we actually had a very positive sale. And so it was an exit and, and the new situation I wasn't excited about. And I had another opportunity which was basically to, it was in the academic field where um, I was helping state universities, public universities in the United States go online and provide online education and reach many more students than they were able to reach normally. Mm -hmm. And so I was very excited about that. Um, It was a president role and uh, a neat opportunity, but it actually turned out where I was probably, you know, not necessarily the president of the company and maybe more of a pawn than a president, Didn't love that position to be in. And so I decided to not stay in that role. And uh, that's what led me to ultimately where I am today. Um, I was recruited to move to Sacramento, California. So now I'm on the opposite coast from where I started. Um, The original company uh, in 2014, where I was recruited was Purple Communications. And Purple Communications basically provided telecommunications to the deaf community and the deaf community speaks through sign language and video. Um, So, you know, frankly, a a neat and interesting company. I was excited about it. Um, It was neat to have 50% of the the employees deaf. And and so communicating through sign language became a new skill that I had to learn. Brilliant. Um, I really enjoyed that company. But the one thing that I found was, is that the deaf community is very small and there were five companies competing to serve them. But underneath Purple was a neat little subsidiary called Clear Captions. And Clear Captions was trying to serve 40 million people in the United States who were hard of hearing that were completely unserved. And so that opportunity was so big and and also once again, helping people with a really neat new service. And uh, so I pursued that as my first move and we separated the company into clear captions and purple where I was CEO of both. And we grew clear captions. And so 2017, we separated away and sold purple. 
clear captions continued to grow. And so the short version is from a tiny little company with like $3 million in revenue. Um, we're well over 100 million. We've served hundreds of thousands of customers and we continue to grow every day. And we're now moving on to other services, which I know you asked me about, which is aging in place, which we think is also a great opportunity for the company. So that's my quick summary. Fantastic, Bob. So there's so many questions for me to dive into, and I was struggling to almost hold myself back from asking as we went through, but I'll get a chance to ask them now. So um, what a wonderful background you had. What a wonderful opportunity to get some of those incredible lessons, both you know, from your father and mother um, at an early stage. I just wonder when I look at your career, how many, you know, you move so often. So even if we look at Bell Atlantic, you know, you, all these moves you had every 14 months, you were kind of moving to more responsibility in another location. Was that intentional? Were you driving that or was that a kind of product of, of getting access to this leadership development space? Yeah, I think getting access to the leadership development place was was key. Um, and so it was almost mandatory that they threw opportunities in my direction. Mm -hmm. It was then my challenge to say yes to everything thrown at me. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I think very seldom did I ever even re reluctantly push back on anything. And some of them were because they were, you know, take me away from my education, which was centered in Pittsburgh at the University of Pittsburgh. And back then we didn't have online. So, um, and I even did take some moves where I was, you know, two, three hours from my education would commute back and forth to keep it going. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of, you know, very difficult to accept assignments that I did accept um, just because it was a new experience and a new opportunity. Um, and then, you know, as it got to the back end of those 10 years, I was out of that program and it was more me kind of drawing those opportunities to myself. Um, which, which panned out over, over time to, you know, basically rounding out my experiences. What prompted the move from Bell? Oh, that's complicated. So it was, it, it got to the point where I think I had to make, I, I had a recognition of, it was going to be a very long time before I got another opportunity. Um, and, and, you know, without getting into the details, there were, there were rules being put in place that very much limited my, my potential. Mm -hmm. And so, um, at the time it was the telecom boom, I was out of options at Bell Atlantic, or at least in the next few years, and people were throwing opportunities at me at the time. So I took right. one and then it literally was a very long thousand mile move, but you know, it was worth it in the end. Mm. Fantastic. Okay, so um, it, I remember you making an interesting comment to me when you and I spent some time together prior to this, and it was around you saw colleagues who joined Bell at the same time as you and, and burnt out along the way. So I think they, it was something to do with charting their career. I wonder if you can kind of reflect on that for me. Yeah, I think, I think people didn't, let's put it this way, everybody in that little group, there were 32 people that were hired out of 70,000 employees for Bell Atlantic for that special little group. They all had the mindset of success and, and where they were going to be very quickly. Um, I saw a lot of people that literally would tell me every role that they were going to have for the next 20 years to be CEO of Bell Atlantic. Okay. And, and I thought that was cute um, because that doesn't work like that. Um, I think you know, the people that I saw that were successful in the end, you know, they focused on the job they were in and how could they be successful and do that well? Um, because, you know, your boss doesn't care as much 
often about your promotability and your chart and plan for your future. What they care about is accomplishing the mission of that department, that division today. And so, you know, I think the people that stayed focused on the success of their current assignment and, you know, were very aware of what opportunities could they go to next and, and you know, make a good decision about when do you exit? How do you care for your current boss? How do you care for your future boss and make it a win-win for everybody as you move? I think those people did well and the people that were just focused on themselves and what they needed to accomplish on their little chart, they didn't do well. Can you remember the group of 32? Were there many females in that group? You know, it, it, was, a, it was a very diverse group. I think Bell Atlantic had a, a very good um, affirmative action program and, and they, they, they were numbers focused. So it was very balanced. Okay. So I would love to ask you now, and this is not a new conversation at all, but I'd love your perspective on it. Do you believe leaders are born or made, Bob? I think, I think there's a little element of born. You've got to have some basic faculties to get started. Um, you've got to you know, be able to build up some domain experience in whatever you're working in. You have to you know, be able to learn lessons from your mistakes and learn quickly. But I think more importantly, you've got to have a little bit of born just to maintain your confidence because you've got to have confidence in whatever you enter. And so you've got to be nimble and fast thinking and, and whatever. But then after that point, it's all made. And, and so, you know, I, I think anybody that's got some basic capabilities to think and execute and learn um, can then learn what they, they need to learn. Now the question is, do they take the opportunities and find those ways to, to learn and expand their skills um, broadly so that they can, they can accomplish something? And I think those, those broad skills are needed as much to be able to do something as it is to just have confidence and be able to make decisions. And I think, you know, I, I usually use the word analysis paralysis, mm -hmm. but when I see somebody that's, that, you know, has not had the experience or doesn't have the self-confidence, they're stuck. They're not making the decisions that need to be made. And for that reason, people don't look to them for leadership. Have you ever, you know, often in a lot of the conversations, I talk to people about what's known as imposter syndrome. So points in your career where, um, you know, perhaps there's a little voice inside your head saying, why did they give me this job? Uh, don't they know that I don't know what I'm doing? Have you ever had those moments throughout your career, Bob? I think, so I think about expanding yourself and moving up, that you always need to, you, you never lie. I'm a high integrity person, but in order to get those opportunities, I think you have to oversell yourself slightly to get a new opportunity at times. Mm -hmm. And so, and so, you know, I think you have to be careful here. If you overstretch yourself, you'll fail and that will knock you back down the steps. It's almost like if you've ever played the game shoots and ladders, yes, it's we a, call it a great old kids game, right? You don't yeah. want to get to a shoot. You want to keep yeah. reaching for the ladders. Yeah. Um, so if you overstretch yourself and you lie, know you're going to fail. Um, but if, if you, if you can picture yourself doing something that maybe is slightly beyond yourself and then go study and prepare and, and reach out for that, and then go take that role, um, you know, you'll do well. And I think, I think that's it. I think people that like are afraid to just, you know, extend themselves a little bit, don't move. 
Are you does that answer your question? Well, it sort of does. I'm gonna I'm okay. gonna do the follow up part, which is you know when you've been in that situation and you've um, you know you deliberately um, stretched yourself to move into a space where you're going to grow. Have you had that voice that says to you, "Oh, this might be this might be just slightly beyond me"? I wonder if anyone will work that out. Boy, if I told you, I honestly not often, which is <laughs> I feel guilty saying that, but. You know, I think I, I think the other thing that's key is having self-confidence, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, just knowing that I've done other things. I was stretching myself for those too, and I succeeded and I can do this too. Um, I think, you know, like I said, often you fail through the inability to trust your own decisions, to make decisions, to push forward. You just got to have faith. That is such a brilliant growth mindset that you are displaying right there. Um, you know, so many people have one failure and they they fail to get up from it again versus realizing that, you know, I'm learning and I I'm, I may not be there yet, uh, but I'm capable um, of getting there. That's fantastic. So Bob, I wanna ask you about pivotal moments um, in your career that kind of shifted you from being a good to a great leader. Yeah, and it was a failure. Um, so, so when I talked about my startup at boom and bust, um, I call that my second MBA. I think it cost as much as my first MBA. Um, and, uh, you know, the way I looked at that was there was a business model that looked like such a home run at, you know, six months prior, the telecommunications industry was exploding. It was one of those things where we didn't believe we could have failed if we tried. Mm. And, you know, the, the industry dried up. We didn't have backup plans. We didn't have contingencies. Um, and we had a lot of blind faith. And so, you know, I, I, I really do think that um, it, it gave me the ability to realize what success looks like, um, that, you know, be prepared for something to go wrong ask some better questions. Um, and so, and so, but I think after I went through that experience, there was a little bit of now, what are you going to do to me? Because I've, I've really looked at a lot of things going wrong and I just piloted through this tunnel and made it through. And I'm a little bit smarter and a little bit wiser, but boy, I got this, bring it on. Did you have important sponsors throughout your career, Bob? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I had I had sponsors at Bell Atlantic, um, where and and honestly, the the people that were my sponsors at Bell Atlantic actually went on to greatness um, and and you know really ran some very large companies and and did some amazing things. So it was great to watch them and and they watched out for me. Frankly, during that time, I've had various sponsors in private equity. I've done a lot of private equity since Bell Atlantic. And, um, you know, I think, I think clearly private equity is one of those places where they talk to each other. So there's no way that I would ever apply for any job in private equity where another private equity person wouldn't reach out to a previous private equity employer and know my performance and everything about me that I want them to know and don't want them to know. So I think, you know, it's good that I have people that I can call on to say, I help them and I help them and I help them and they have become great sponsors. Can you call out for me? What do you think if you were to think of, you know, your best two sponsors throughout your career, 
what did they do? Like what actually did that look like being a sponsor for you? Um, I, I think, you know, some of my, my favorites, um, yeah, I, I can honestly, I can honestly think of a sponsor at Bell Atlantic that told me to quit Bell Atlantic. Okay. That's brilliant. And it was, and, and it was very interesting at the time, but it was basically, you know, you, you, I look at your opportunities and I look at you and I think you could do better elsewhere, elsewise, even though that's the wrong thing for me to say as your senior leader. Um, I thought that was, that was a huge win. And I've had massive respect for that individual um, ever since they did that. Because that was probably a decision that I don't think I could have made as easily if it wasn't for a boss telling me, get out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, you know, obviously some of them have just been there that I could call on for a recommendation and, and be able to speak on my behalf. Um, and then I think there's, there's others that I can name that um, are somebody that I could just call and say, what would you, what, you're in a role that I'm going to be talking to about doing this thing what would you do if you were me? Would you do it or wouldn't you? And do you think this will be successful? And so I've always appreciated the ability to just call and get that advice. It's a mix. So if I turn to you as a sponsor of talent now, what do you do when you're sponsoring talent? Um, probably all the above. So, you know, there's times where I do recommendations. There's times where I give career direction and advice should I or shouldn't I take that promotion or move over here? Um, honestly, there's people that I seek out um, that I've sponsored in the past. And I've got, you know, like one individual that's worked for me in three different companies now. Um, and so, you know, those are the people that I absolutely go back to and pull in because I want them near me. Yes. I want them literally, some of the reasons I, I bring people in is people that like to tell me I'm wrong. Um, And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong, but I appreciate that they have the confidence of working with me, um, that they will do that. And so, you know, likewise, I do the same with them. And so I think, I think I'm a straight shooter. It's, you know, whatever's on my mind, I'm going to just say it within, within limits, but you know, I, I, I literally give very good and direct feedback. And so when I'm sponsoring somebody, they're very confident knowing they're going to get it from me. Frankly, people I'm not sponsoring get it from me as well. But um, I think the people that I am sponsoring probably get that extra advice on the side where, you know, this is, this is some things you could have done better, um, that they need to hear that more often. It's really interesting because often when I talk to people about sponsorship and you've hit the nail on the head, I think, on a couple of things that um, people maybe overlook sometimes, you know, it's very different from a mentoring relationship. You know, a sponsor um, actually has a seat at the table, has the potential to influence a career move for you. Um, And the other thing that I think is really important is it's a clear two-way relationship. You know, those people you're sponsoring help you be better. Correct. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. So do you feel like you need to nurture female talent differently than male talent when you're sponsoring talent? Um, I think you just have to be awareness of everybody's personality. Everybody has differences. And so, um, you know, I think, I think people are motivated by different things. They have, they have different, career needs and career issues. 
Um, they have different phobias and, you know, back to imposter syndrome. And, you know, I, I think, I think I make it, you know, my, my mission to be aware of who they are and try to work within the boundaries of who they are. Um, and what are their desires and wishes and capabilities? And so I, I don't know if there's a difference between men, women, it's a hundred percent. There's a difference between people and you have to care for that. Okay. So let's talk about diversity and clear captions and sure. your kind of journey in that space. Yeah. So I, it's, it's kind of interesting. I know I normally don't think immediately about promoting diversity and buzzwords. I'm not that kind of a person. I just, it doesn't come, come naturally to me. What I do think about is getting a job done. And so we had a company, we have a customer base that we want to serve and serve well. And so, you know, what I'm looking for is mission oriented people that, you know, love our mission. They are, I, I don't want to say outgoing, but they are um, operate in a mode where they communicate well positively, negatively, factually, and, and know their job. They need to be a rock star who knows that domain and can accomplish that, that thing that I've given them. And so when I go to fill those roles um, and start building something, especially in clear captions, where we literally build it from scratch, one hire at a time. Um, when I think about all of those roles, if I can find somebody that fits the bill, it doesn't matter where they came from and who they are. Um, and so, you know, we were hiring young, we were hiring old, we were hiring men, we were hiring women, we were hiring every gender nationality. And we didn't think about it twice. And honestly, we never thought about it until I think some of the noise started um, before COVID really hit uh, around gender diversity, um, especially in California and Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And so we got out the numbers. And we literally said, okay, give me the payroll, give it to me by manager, by non-manager, give it to me by our local California area, give it to me nationwide. And on all of those, compare it to the bases of people that are there. And it turned out the company was way more diverse in every element from gender to ethnicity to, to everything you imagine than the local area, because we just did what we needed to do. Um, and so... I think the other thing is, is that we are also very focused on, on a respectful culture with a lot of training in anti-harassment and complaint management and all those things that, you know, companies normally do, but we probably do about five or six hours of training per year on that subject for everybody. And so um, I think that helps maintain that respectful culture because we don't commit those big sins within the company that I think many other companies do. Um, so I think that helps out as well. Fantastic. Can I turn um, your thoughts now to the world of private equity? So you've operated mm -hmm. in the private equity space for a while. And one of the questions, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear is how many senior females do you see in the private equity space these days? Less than men. I mean, there's, there's no question about it. I don't have numbers. I mean, I don't sit in corporate headquarters of any private equity firm. I'm simply a CEO within the private equity space. Yes. But um, I, I think I see a lot less peers that are women. When I do see them, they're often founders um, where, 
you know, they entered into their role probably because it was just their idea and they just started building a company around themselves and it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so I think, you know, that's what I see. What I would say is the people I know in private equity, they, they hire like I do. We're looking for people that can do the job, period. And it doesn't matter where you came from. And then I think that leaves me scratching my head around why are there not as many women candidates being presented for those same roles with the same experience, the same capabilities. And I don't know that answer. Um, I have some suspicions, but I honestly don't know. Mm. Um, It's a big question. There's lots of areas like that, Bob. So um, really interesting. Did you always have a kind of feeling that you could be a CEO one day? I, I never set out in search of the CEO role. Um, I think I searched out for a great, great job, support a family, um, and, and leadership opportunity, right. Where I would continue to progress. And I just kept looking for the next best opportunity and the next opportunity. Um, I think about the time, well, in my startup, it was small. Mm-hmm. I felt like I could have been the startup, the CEO of that startup. Um, but I was not, I was the, you know, number two in command and, you know, I saw that opportunity as a possible. When I got to Securus, I was on the verge of that opportunity. Um, and so I think I got so close to that one. And that was a pretty large company that um, th- at that point I said, oh, I know I can get this. I know I can do this. And so I think from there I was, you know, in search of that next opportunity where I could be the CEO. But uh, the funny thing is it was not for my pride or anything else like that. Frankly, it was it frustrated me that I could see a better strategy or a better direction. And I can't influence that being number two or three as well as I could if it was just me making the decision. And so I just couldn't wait to have that role where I could be the one. And so for that reason, I think I pushed for it a little bit, but you know, it more, it's, it's more likely that it just happened. The opportunities were presented and I took them. Look back over your career, are there things you'd do differently along the way? I I think I would say that um, if you would have asked me about this 20 years ago, about something I did 25 years ago, or 15 years ago about something I did 10 years ago, I would tell you, oh, I wish I would have done this different. And oh, this was such a mistake. But you know, when I look back on it now and see 30 years of accumulated goodness and mistakes, I think some of the mistakes were better for me than the good things I did. And so I absolutely would go back and tell myself to shut up, take your medicine and do that mistake again and enjoy it. Because the problem is you just don't enjoy it when it's five years later, but 30 years later, they're kind of entertaining to me now. Do you see yourself heading back to Pittsburgh one day? I I visit. I, I, I do like the city of Pittsburgh. It's a great place. It's cold. I'm sorry, Pittsburghers. I love California. California is a great place to live right now. He's converted. Used your psychology, the psychology aspect of your degree. How's that kind of fit in from a leadership perspective? Um, I, I probably use it more than economics. Um, I think I think you know it gets back to that awareness of the differences of people. Um, I spend a lot of time. I think analyzing who they are and trying to understand where are they coming from and why. 
Um, I've had a I've had a lot of interesting um, things that I've read about the creation of memories and patterns in the brain, and I think I also have a better understanding of I just can't change people, right? Mm-hmm. They're not they're not something that you can just simply say think differently. It doesn't work like that, and so um, I think I I a lot of that upbringing and foundation in psychology has helped a lot. Has COVID changed your organization at all? Oh yeah, a lot. A lot, a lot. Um, What's that about? Well, it was interesting. I was actually in New York City when New York City was melting down that first week. Um, I actually attended a Broadway play the last day Broadway was open um, and caught a flight out the next day to go back and try to figure out what to do different as a company. And, um, you know, we shut down. We literally took every single person and just said, everybody go home, take a computer, set up, you know, and it was before we were being told to, but I just recognized it was coming. And, yeah. and you know, I think you, um, you were probably not as tied in with me at the time, but we had call centers all over the world where we were doing similar. Um, it was crazy. But, but the interesting thing for me has been, um, I'm not one of those CEOs that's trying to force people back into the office. Um, we still have two massive spaces here in California that are completely empty. And if anybody wants to sublease a space, I know a place. Um, but, uh, you know, they're empty and we are operating very well online. The entire company works online. The, the one benefit that I think, you know, has been interesting for me is quality of life for the team. Mm -hmm. And I think about, um, mothers who are now able to, you know, balance family needs a lot more than they were before the pandemic. Um, and they are working great online at home. And I think the other thing is we've gone to a more relaxed mode where I hate to say, I'm probably working email all hours of the day, Yes. but I'm able to get up and walk away from the computer during a break and maybe do a house project or something for a minute. Um, because I'm probably easily putting in my, my normal work day of hours and then some, but I've got a lot more flexibility and that totally changes quality of life. And that's been true for every single employee and they all love it. And we're just going to stay this way. We have no interest in going back. The company is more productive than we ever have been. And everybody's more relaxed, crazy, but COVID taught us something. It's really interesting because, you know, I see a lot of, um, of your contemporaries who are going the other way, Mm -hmm. um, who are talking about returning to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, was it something definitive for you that influenced your decision to not do that? Well, I think everybody's leadership style is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I found was I don't, first of all, I don't need face-to-face contact to lead. Um, I found many ways to create formal, informal communication channels. We do everything on video. Um, we have, we have, text chains and everything else we need. Um, I found that decision-making and communication actually moves faster. And frankly, we're all sitting in front of big monitors and have a lot of stuff happening versus wasting time, you know, walking between meetings and, uh, you know, waiting for someone to show up or, or who knows all the other inefficiencies that I think we probably dealt with for years and didn't think about. And then travel. It's amazing to me how much business I accomplished today without travel. Um, And that includes, you know, meetings with investors in New York City, where, you know, for me from California, it's a day of travel to get to New York. It's a day of meetings in New York and a day of travel to get back. And I've shot the week. 
where instead I could probably do one, two hours on Zoom and I've accomplished the same mission now. So I think we've become so much more productive and, and it works. I don't understand why people are so pushing for that face-to-face -face connection, which frankly, I think we're getting video. Um, we miss it. I'm, I'm a people person too. I, I would love to be around people more, but I don't think it's mandatory for a corporation. They certainly would not um, lose employees over the fact that they won't come into the office now. Um, and that's fantastic, Bob, because I know for females in particular, um, you know, we're still very much in a traditional sort of society where largely the care for family falls to females. And a lot of females have made a decision or potentially are making a decision around, you know, what, what their new normal is going to be like. So um, a lot of respect for you for, for making those decisions. I've actually appreciated it because they keep chasing the best employees out of their companies. Thank you, all you CEOs that keep doing that. I appreciate it. I will take them. It's great. Here he is, Bob, the recipient of the talent. <laughs> Bob, um, I would love to ask you the final question that I ask everybody in the interview series. And that is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like now? And do you think it needs to change? Um, I think, well, you know, I'll go back to some things I was saying earlier. I think, you know, everybody needs to find their own leadership style. And, you know, you do that through getting experience. You do that through, through successes and failures. Um, and so, so, you know, I, I think brave feminine leadership is really the appropriate leadership style for who you are. And, mm -hmm. and you go and you, you get your confidence behind that leadership style and you use it and you become successful through doing that. Um, I don't think, I think it's, I think it's too hard to, to pigeonhole that there's a, an automatic difference between women and men and their leadership styles. That's not true. Yeah. There are, it's what works for you. And so I think, I think take advantage of that, gain confidence, sell yourself, stretch yourself a little bit. Um, don't tell, don't lie, but maybe a little edge of what you're capable of, but have confidence and go execute it. You'll do well. Bob, thank you so much for joining our conversation today. It's been wonderful to have you join me and I can't thank you enough. Sounds great. It's been great being here. Thank you, Melissa. It's great seeing you as always. <laughs>